So we're back to the theatre that is John's Gospel. And it's been presented to us as a little bit of a, a courtroom situation where John um, is reflecting back 50 or 60 years and he's pulling together his witnesses, um, the people that um, were his peers all those years ago. And it's people that, whose testimony will um, help support John's contention that um, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Um, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing in him, those that believe in him will receive eternal life. That's his contention. That's the summary of his book. That's from, ver from chapter 20, verse 31. And what we've been encouraged to do is consider the book as a um, John very carefully selecting his uh, witnesses and bringing their testimonies together and presenting them in support of his argument. Just really quickly, who has he brought to the stage so far? Well, he starts by opening his, um, his case with a compelling declaration as to the origin, identity, power and purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ's coming to the world. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, etc. Um, so he lays the stage by making this statement as to his own conviction as to who the identity of Jesus is. Then he also declares his own testimony in chapter 1. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then there's the testimony of the late great John the Baptist, who having pointed Jesus out as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, then encourages his own disciples to follow the Lord Jesus as their Lord. Then he brings into the picture the Lord's own first disciples, specifically Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip and Nathaniel. Then there's Jesus' own mother, Mary, her testimony at the wedding of Canaan. Um, whatever he tells you, do it. And it was uh, uh, another witness's testimony as to the greatness of this person. Then there's the testimony of Jesus' own words and actions amongst the money changers at the temple courts, displaying in public the zeal he had for the services the sacred services of the temple. And then last week we had the one-on-one -on -one secret conversation with Nicodemus in which Jesus teaches the teacher. And there's a, a certain ambiguity. It's kind of left hanging, I think. Maybe, maybe you have different views. Ian was um, pointing us to John 3 and 16 and made the point. It's not really clear whether that was a certainly words the Lord Jesus used, but was it in the context of his meeting with Nicodemus, or was this a statement that he was making afterwards? So there's, um, there's that little bit of ambiguity, which is quite intriguing. I think it's nice to have those things that to some extent are left to our imagination. Um, so uh, our 
view or at this point in the story what happens to Nicodemus is somehow left floating. In the process John brings to us a catalogue of some of the most profound statements which will become foundational to the Christian gospel. Things like as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert so the son of man must be lifted up and the most famous verse as we, be, we were thinking of last week verse 16 of chapter 3 for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life you get this blend of witnesses brought forward and their testimony is recorded by John in his um, gospel and it's interspersed with um, profound divinely inspired statements from the Apostle John which is kind of a, a summary of things at that point which is how I think John 3 verse 16 fits into the narrative. So now we're continuing with this theatre and um, we're in the second half of chapter 3 verses 22 to, th to 36 and it's interesting because um, John hasn't finished with John the Baptist as a witness yet. So we've uh, already mentioned that he was a witness in, in chapter 2. But he's bringing him back on the stand in chapter 3. Curiously, he hasn't finished with Nicodemus either yet. So Nicodemus comes back onto the stand in chapter 7. Where he makes a little bit of a stand in front of his peers. And then goes very silent. And then Nicodemus comes back into the picture again in chapter 19. Where he makes a very public declaration by his actions as to what he thought of the Lord Jesus and that's to do with him um, helping Joseph of Arimathea take Jesus' body from the cross. So nailing his colours to the mast if we can say it at that point. But um, the second half of chapter 3 is uh, John the Apostle, the writer of the book, bringing John the Baptist back into the picture and considering an extension of his um, testimony. Um, I'm going to read it, chapter 3, verse 22 to 36. But as we read it, think about things that it teaches us about. Uh, I think there's lessons about John the Baptist. And by the way, if I was going to give my talk a title, it would be a quote from John the Baptist. He must increase... That's Jesus must increase and I must decrease. That's got to be our takeaway message from this section. So we'll, we'll learn lessons about John the Baptist. We'll learn lessons about the Lord Jesus Christ himself who is depicted as a bridegroom. We'll learn about the disciples who are depicted as the bride of the groom. And we'll also learn a little bit about the Apostle John the writer Let's go to chapter 3, verse 22. After this, that's um, John presenting the story of Nicodemus. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now John also was baptising at Aeon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptised. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew 
over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. So John the Baptist and his story is brought back onto the stand um, for a further testimony from him. What's he said so far in his first testimony he has declared re- with regard to the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what John the Baptist has already said about the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the one who comes after me. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He said twice, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me, because he is before me. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove, and remain on him. And finally, I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. Direct quotations that the Apostle John in his Gospel uh, refers to that were said by this late great John the Baptist. So now um, what comes next? John is in his memoir is saying there's another very significant testimony that John the Baptist made that I need to include in my case here. Uh, A little bit of context Um, The Lord Jesus has now established his public ministry. So he's um, beginning to become more famous. So he's travelling with his disciples into the countryside and he's making a stand and attracting disciples, some of which are disciples who were once with John the Baptist. And you have this rather bizarre situation where you have John the Baptist... Um, preparing the way for the Lord and he's already identified the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and encouraging his own disciples to follow Jesus but he's still in the Jordan and he's still recruiting his own disciples and baptising them and then in parallel with that a little bit further down or up the river I'm not sure you've got the Lord Jesus the newcomer and uh, he's seen as as a prophet emerging on the scene and he has a different message Uh, His message is not pointing forward, but his message 
um, rather subtly at this stage and he's allowing other people to do the talking for him like John the Baptist is that he is indeed the Messiah and he's baptizing too or more accurately his disciples are baptizing too now, this isn't a, really a discussion about baptism that would be a little bit of a sidetrack but it seems at the time and this is now not necessarily the case in, in baptism today but at the time there seemed to be um, a link with baptism as an illustration of ceremonial washing. So um, the baptism of repentance, as it was called, John's baptism. Um, not entirely clear what the baptism was that the Lord and his disciples were doing, but it was part of demonstrating your allegiance in uh, the case of John's disciples to him, in the case of the Lord's disciples to the Lord. So you've got this conflict going on, and you have this certain Jew that is referenced who um, is questioning you know, what really is going on here. And the question is given the um, subject of ceremonial washing, and that's all we know about it. So it's hard really to get specific as to what the particular problem was. But I just like to think you've got um, two holy men, clearly holy men, John the Baptist and the newly emerging Lord Jesus, and the recruiting disciples and baptizing, and there's some competition going on. And you know, those observing are saying to John the Baptist, you know, what's going on here? That's the context um, in which we um, come to John's reaction. Just a little aside, there's a, a real key lesson for us. Um, the problem emerged because there was competition um, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's just a little kind of tangential lesson in my own life. Um, I'm a baptized believer and when I was baptized um, as a young adult, um, it was a declaration, a public declaration of my commitment to him. And that was many, many years ago. And there are things in my life that compete for his space and it causes controversy. And it's just a, a little challenge to my own heart as to how much priority does the Lord get or is there indeed competition in my life for his, his, um, him as, as my priority. But let's unpick um, John's response. Well, the, the challenge comes from verse 26. Um, the, the people come to John and say, John, this Jesus, the man you spoke well of, is also baptising and everyone is going to him. Uh, that, that's my justification for concluding that there's some competition going on. But let's unpick John's response to that in verse 27. A man can only receive what is given to him from heaven. And John is, uh, I think, saying to his disciples who were questioning, you know, who, who should we follow here? Or the certain Jew who was confused about ceremonial washing. He's saying, you need to follow your, your calling. And people who are going to the Lord Jesus are going there because heaven has told them to go. It's a really important principle in Christianity is we don't sit and cleverly work out 
that Jesus is uh, the Son of God and our Saviour, um, and therefore we follow him. Um, we follow him because the truth about him has been divinely revealed to us. And in fact, human logic doesn't really count. And you get that principle in First um, Corinthians where it talks about God having chosen the foolish um, to confound the wise. And we read verses like the message of the cross is foolishness uh, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. Um, we were thinking in our earlier service about uh, Peter's declaration when the Lord asked, who do you think, you know, who do you think I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. This is uh, something that's been revealed to you by my Father in heaven. So let's make no mistake about it. If we're following the Lord Jesus Christ, as I believe we all are, then it's not because somehow we're smart. It's because we've had our calling from heaven. And I think that's the first thing John in John's response. He's saying, well, you know, if those people are um, going to this person, Jesus Christ, then that's super because they're um, following what has been given to them from heaven. Verse 28, he says, I am not the Christ. Um, so in other words, um, you know, I'm not the Christ. So they, if they've been called to follow the Christ, then um, that's what they're doing. And I'm thrilled about it. We'll come back to that point in a second. Verse 29, the next point, and this is where he brings in an illustration. And it's really interesting that this, the words that are quoted are from John the Baptist. And it's just a, a, a really cool illustration that we can get help from. The, the, the bridegroom, the bride, and the best man. That's what's being talked about here. Um, and I'm sure that this illustration was being heard for the first time from the mouth of John the Baptist to the disciples. So they hadn't thought about the, the Lord Jesus as the groom and the disciples as the bride before. But John's writing about this in his old age as a mature uh, Christian that has been immersed in the apostles' teaching. And John's words now are seen, even though it was an illustration at the time, they're seen as highly prophetic. We'll come back to that at the end. So verse 29, he says, The bride belongs to the bridegroom. In other words, Jesus is the bridegroom, and I'm just a friend who is attending him, or the best man. It's a lovely illustration because... Um, I was the best man at Ian and Angie's wedding. Now, how wholly inappropriate would it have been if the attention was focused on me and not the bride? So, um, and what, what, a, what a great illustration from John the Baptist. He's saying, I'm, uh, the Lord Jesus is the bridegroom and I'm, I'm a friend who's attending to him. But, you know, don't, don't focus on me because it's not about me. It's about him and his bride. Um, so uh, the bride belongs to the groom and it's entirely appropriate that they follow him. And isn't it the case that as the, certainly on the wedding day and also uh, through the marriage, 
the best man kind of disappears. <laughs> he does his bit and he disappears. And it's a beautiful picture of John the Baptist. I'm kind of left wondering, why didn't John the Baptist become a disciple of the Lord? I know he's already announced it and surely he would have known his calling. And, and I'm left with the thought that John the Baptist was effectively an Old Testament prophet. He kind of bridged the Old Testament and the New Testament. And his mission in life was to prepare the way for the Lord. And his job wasn't done yet. So he had to continue to preach that message and do the baptizing. And he was very effective at it because it seems to me that the more people he um, baptized and taught, then the more, the bigger the volume of disciples that went over to the Lord. So you get this picture of John immersed in his mission. He had no doubt as to what his role was and he could see it in the, in the Old Testament that he was um, uh, a man sent from God and he was to prepare the way of the Lord and he was reveling in it, especially when these people came confused saying, why are all these people going to Jesus? Well, John was saying, actually, that's my job being effective. And uh, he goes on to say how full of joy he was. And again, it's, a, it's arguably a little bit of a, a tangent. But how thrilled am I with the role that God has given me? And, um, you know, rest assured that God has a role for each one of us. Um, being a Christian isn't just about being saved from sin and the penalty of sin and, and a place secured in heaven. That's absolutely part of it and a fabulous part of it. But he's saved us to live a life, uh, an abundant life as the Lord Jesus described it. And that abundant life was, um, that abundant life is about understanding what it is he wants us to do and enjoy doing it and enjoy seeing the consequences of us doing it. Um, you know, how much do we enjoy the, the, there'll probably be a reference to this in um, chapter four, the story of the woman at the well, where the Lord says to his disciples that, you know, he has food to eat that they don't know about. And as a quotation from the Old Testament, in one version says, I delight to do your will. Oh my God. So just as it was John the Baptist's delight to be doing God's will, preparing the way for the Lord, so it was the Lord's delight to do God's will, um, to be fulfilling his role as God's chosen servant and our saviour. Um, and in the case of the Lord, to finish his work is always, is also um, sent the... Just a... <clears throat> A reference to in Revelation chapter 9 again this is a, a writing of John I'm not entirely sure the chronology I don't know whether John's revelation came after his gospel I suspect it did um, but nevertheless uh, a writing of John so Revelation 19 verse 6 then I heard what sounded like a great multitude like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready, fine linen, bright and clean, has given her to wear. Um, 
So we have a reference to a rather curious thing, the wedding of the Lamb. And we're still, we've still got John the Baptist on the stand and having a few days earlier made the declaration, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He's now referring to the Lord Jesus as the bridegroom. And John, you know, he's in Revelation, he's writing down what's being revealed to him. But uh, just a lovely connection, isn't it, with what um, the testimony that John the Baptist had heard, which now he is recording as part of his memoir in this theatre that describes the importance of the Lord Jesus, that he's the lamb and he's the bridegroom and there's going to be a wedding in heaven when his bride that is clothed in perfection is presented to him. Just a beautiful thing. <coughs> Still unpicking John's answer, so let's go back to 29. The friend who attends the bridegroom is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. That's, um, you know, you, you kind of feel for John a little bit because he's had this rather weird life as a, what I believe is a Nazarite, kind of his long hair and strange clothes and strange food and all of that, living in the desert. And he's gathered together a load of disciples and he's baptising them and he's, he's uh, preparing the way for the Lord. And now um, those disciples, you know, in high volume, are leaving John the Baptist and um, pledging their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's John's reaction? I'm thrilled. Um, it says, that is my joy, and my joy is now complete. Again, another aside, it's about um, how we feel about our service. Um, would we describe joy as a characteristic of our service with each other in the church? Uh, for John it was, for the Lord it was. Um, it's in Luke Luke chapter 10, we read of a prayer that the Lord makes and it says he's looking up to heaven and it says he's filled with joy and the Holy Spirit and he prays to God. Um, it's a real challenge to me because our service can often feel burdensome and a bit laborious and maybe that's because often we have just the wrong complexion on it. I know John was delighted in the confidence that he was doing what God expected of him and that has to be our aspiration doesn't it to know from God's word what it is he wants us to do and to do it with all our hearts. I think Ian did quote Ephesians 2 and 10 last week about us being God's workmanship um, created to do good works that God's prepared in advance for us to do. So each of us has that um, opportunity. And it's a delightful thing. It's what um, mature disciples do. They revel in their service and um, enjoy it. And it's not about being smiley all the time and you know, not reacting to difficulties around us, which can be really um, troublesome. The reality is, you know, life is tough and we react appropriately to that but deep down you know if we're doing what God intends us to do there is a joy 
that is independent of circumstances. And then verse 30, uh, he must become greater, I must become less. Now that's, um, I, I see that as such an important thing for us to learn for two reasons. It's putting Jesus where he belongs. He is the greatest. He's described as the firstborn. The firstborn means he's the supreme one, the greatest. And he must increase in our lives and we must de decrease just because of that reason. Um, but also there's a, an element in my own experience where me decreasing is, is hard. I don't know how, how often you found yourself seeking people's um, opinion, feedback. Actually, sometimes, I read this somewhere, sometimes when we ask for opinion, what we expect is praise. I ask for an opinion and what I'm really craving is someone said, yeah, you're great. <laughs> you know, you did a really good job. And that's about us trying to manage our insecurities. You know, we can somehow feel inadequate or um, bad about ourselves for whatever reason. And we crave um, somehow being stroked, you know, told that we're good. And isn't that an important lesson for us that, um, of course we've got insecurities, um, but if we're doing what God wants us to do, then let's not be so occupied with wanting praise, but let's recognise that he must increase and I must decrease. It's a very telling message for, for me and uh, for us all, I think. Um, finally, um, those last verses, 31 to 36, um, there's some ambiguity here as well. And I actually don't really know about um, the, when it comes to punctuation uh, in English, I don't know how much of that is part of uh, interpretation or part of inspiration. And if you look at verse um, 32 to 36, sorry, 31 to 36, sometimes it's in quotes in some versions, so it suggests someone said them, said these words, um, and you're left, if, if someone did say these precise words rather than just um, John's commentary, then it could be either John the Baptist saying them because it, it comes immediately after what, what John has said, or it could be a um, vocalised summary statement that the Apostle John, the writer, is actually saying. So it's good to kind of um, think through that conundrum. You know, is this part of John the Baptist's testimony or is it, is it part of the Apostle John's testimony, bearing in mind um, when he's writing it 50 years after the event? My inclination, and you can correct me if I'm wrong or if you feel there's a better way of looking at it, John has called John the Baptist back to the stand and he's listened now to the extension of his testimony so he's gone beyond de uh, declaring the Lord Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's now declaring him as the bridegroom um, who is drawing, attracting his bride to him a new beautiful dimension to it. That now is John's testimony complete. 
And then the old man, the Apostle John, interjects his own little summing up. And I like to think that these verses are John's summing up of where he's got so far in, uh, in his argument. So verse 31, um, the one who comes from above um, is above all. That has to be John talking about Jesus, doesn't it? The one who is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. That has to be John referring to John the Baptist, I think. The one who comes from heaven is above all. That's Jesus again. Um, he testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. I think that's Jesus again. The man, that's John the Baptist, who um, has accepted it, that's, has accepted Jesus' testimony, has certified that God is truthful. So here is um, uh, John, in, John the writer, the apostle, summing up John the Baptist's words, and he's saying, John had no doubt about the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's convinced about it, and he's now testifying it and saying that he's certifying that God is truthful. Verse 34, for the one whom God has sent, I think that's John the Baptist, uh, there came a man sent from God, his name was John, the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limited. And then verse, without limit, then verse 35 and 36 is the Apostle John's punchline, and this is another of those um, profound uh, core statements that sits along alongside John 3 and 16. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for the wrath of God remains on him. A kind of, um, in a nutshell, summary statement as to where John has got up to in his argument. So that's all for this week. The ne next witness that John calls to the stand is uh, the woman at the well. And we look forward to hearing more of John's case um, as we get into that narrative too. Shall we pray? <laughs>